What's up, Stitches? Welcome to So What? I'm Isabella Rosner, a person who likes people, places, and things, but mostly historical needlework. This is the second standalone episode of the pod, and it's an interview with Dennis Notedruft, the head of exhibitions at the Fashion and Textile Museum in London. And this interview is all about the museum's current exhibition. The exhibition is the ultimate show for So What fans, and I am not exaggerating when I say that. It's called 150 Years of the Royal School of Needlework, Crown to Catwalk, and you guessed it, it's a show all about the history of the Royal School of Needlework! Ah, what a joy, what a treat! So today, Dennis and I are talking all about the Fashion and Textile Museum and the RSN exhibition, which is on until the 4th of September. Before I get into some background info, I gotta do my social media spiel. You know it, you love it, you live for it, I know. Images of what we discuss in the interview today, as well as a whole bunch of links to stuff, are available on the So What social media pages. Go to at So What Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to feast your eyes on those goodies, or go to our website, SoWhatPodcast.com. Yay! Okay. Now, let me tell you about Dennis Notedruft. Dennis is the head of exhibitions at the Fashion and Textile Museum, which was founded in 2003 by iconic British fashion designer Zandra Rhodes. It's the only museum in the UK dedicated to showing contemporary fashion and textile design, but it also showcases historical stuff. Though his title is head of exhibitions, Dennis is also the Fashion and Textile Museum's curator. He's curated a whole load of exhibitions at the museum, including Liberty in Fashion, The World of Anna Sui, and 1920s Jazz Age, Fashion and Photographs. He is also the co-author of How to Draw Like a Fashion Designer, How to Draw Vintage Fashion, and Zandra Rhodes' 50 Fabulous Years in Fashion. The exhibition we'll be discussing in this little chat is, as I mentioned, called 150 Years of the Royal School of Needlework, Crown to Catwalk. This is a description of the exhibition from the Fashion and Textile Museum's website. Quote, In 1872, the Royal School of Needlework, RSN, was founded on two key principles. The first, the preservation of hand embroidery as an art form, and the second, the support of women's independence through work. In the intervening 150 years, the RSN's journey towards these goals has taken many unexpected forms and featured countless high-profile projects. 150 Years of the Royal School of Needlework will explore this historic organization's contribution to the world of embroidery. The exhibition will present collaborations with the great names of the arts and crafts movement, commissions produced for the British royal family, contemporary works created for top international designers, and pieces by the RSN's talented students. Presenting textiles from the Royal School of Needlework's own 5,000-piece archive, alongside examples from museums and collections across the UK, this in-depth retrospective will display the often surprising history of one of the UK's oldest and most revered applied arts organizations, end quote. Dennis curated the exhibition in collaboration with Dr. Susan K. Williams, chief executive at the Royal School of Needlework. 
And those who have listened to past So What episodes may remember that my first interview ever for this little old pod was with Dr. Susan K. Williams. So it's a really lovely full circle moment for me and maybe for you all. I hope so. I don't know, but maybe. So without further ado, here's the interview. Dennis, thank you so much for being here today. I love your work and the museum that you are a part of. So it's a big honor to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me. And it's a big honor to talk to you. How did you come to be the head of exhibitions at the Fashion and Textile Museum? What was your career path, your journey? Well, actually, it was funny. I actually went to university in America, where I'm from. And yeah, and I went to study art. I was going to be an artist. That was my plan. So I have a BFA in two dimensional design. So drawing, painting, photography, and I was going to be a great artist. Mm -hmm. That was the goal. And then of course you graduate and your parents are like, when are you getting a job? And Mm, so somehow being a, a great artist didn't quite materialize. So as you do, maybe you discovered this when I left university, there's a point where you move a lot, like you can't Mm. quite settle down. So I was going around the country and staying with friends and my father would move me every time. And finally, my friend said, oh, move to California. So I ended up in California and I'd never been to California. I'm from the Midwest. So I was going into grocery stores and people weren't wearing shoes. And I'm like, this is too weird for me. Like I can't really cope. So I said to my father, I said, oh, I'm not really sure this is for me. And he finally said, you know what? You need to figure it out. So I'm not moving you just Mm. and I stayed for many years and that's really where my career took off I went to design school because I needed something to pass the time until I could get out of California (laughs) and of course you then get into the habit of living in California and after design school I started an internship with Zondra Rhodes Mm -hmm. and then I worked for Zondra in San Diego she had a studio there so she was part-time in London and part-time in San Diego and I worked for her in California and it was part-time and then it was full-time and then it was seven days a week and you were sleeping at the studio but it was fun I was young those days so you know somebody said now you have to work till midnight I'm like please kill me (laughs) It was really, and that was good. And that's really, so that was a really important part of my career because of course, Zondra founded the Fashion and Textile Museum. Mm -hmm. So after I worked for Zondra, I had my own line of clothes and I was teaching fashion and fashion history and drawing all along through that process. And then I started bringing students to London and that's really how I got to the Fashion and Textile Museum. I came just before it opened and Zondra kind of, created a job for me and I came to work at the Fashion Textile Museum mainly doing education. We were taken over by Newham College Hmm. and they kept me on and they asked me to run an exhibitions program and I said you're crazy why would you do that? (laughs) I just said that's a lot of work that's expensive. And now here we are. Yeah I'm like you're sure you want to do that that seems a lot. Anyway they did and I started the exhibitions program and I think we're probably 40 exhibitions now down the line something like that somewhere in that range 38 to 40 and since maybe three years I've head of exhibitions and my colleague Melissa is head of operations and commercial so we've kind of split the the museum's kind of responsibilities but we all work very much as a, a, a team. That is amazing. Congratulations to all involved. I hope your dad is like, oh, yes, you. Can you please tell me more about the current exhibition on at the Fashion and Textile Museum, which is called 150 Years of the Royal School of Needlework Crown to Catwalk? 
How did that exhibition come about? What is it all about? Tell me everything. It's a fabulous exhibition. So I hope everybody listening gets a chance to see it. It is very good. But we have done various educational kind of workshops and projects with the Royal School for, for a while. And the 150th anniversary was approaching and they came to us with this idea to do an exhibition as part of their celebration of 150 years. And I've always liked the Royal School of Needlework and I really like their story. You know, the backstory is interesting to me. And it just took off from there. It was really driven by Susan K. Williams, Dr. Susan K. Williams, who's the head of the RSN and really her baby. And she had uh, a vision and kind of knew what she wanted to get across. But we, you know, it's very collaborative and we kind of took on board uh, developing it as an exhibition and it came together and here we are. And it's a really fabulous exhibition. The Royal School of Needlework was established to give women an opportunity to learn a skill that could earn them a living. Mm -hmm. So in the Victorian era in England, if you came from a certain uh, uh, group of people and you were a female and you didn't have money of your own, or your father died or your husband died, you were limited in how you could make money because you still had to be respectable. So needlework was seen as a respectable job Mm -hmm. and they were taught how to uh, sew, to do the needlework. There were commissions, they worked for all sorts of people. And that's how the Royal School started. It was a social enterprise. At the time, it was quite exciting that somebody Mm -hmm. could come up with this idea. And it was, it was driven by the aristocratic as Lady Victoria Welby, along with uh, Princess Helena, Queen Victoria's daughter, was involved. So it definitely was a royal school. It had royal patronage and it's still a school and it still has royal patronage. Love that. It is so interesting. I know a bit about the history of it. And Dr. Susan K. Williams was the first person I interviewed for So What? So this is like a lovely full circle. Oh, a circle. I love it. You've come around. There you are. Yeah. For the people who have not seen the show and hopefully many of them will, can you give me like a summary of what the show is? Sure, I certainly can. Yes, of course. The exhibition starts with our small gallery, which looks at the very earliest work of the Royal School of Needlework. So they worked in various formats. They had three pupils when they started, and Mm. they started to teach them um, embroidery. And there were twofold. It was to give them skills and to um, an opportunity to make a living but also they felt it was a chance to preserve traditional skills of course English embroideries you know was very famous you know going back to medieval times with opus anglicanum mm-hmm. so it was really a chance to preserve these skills uh, they would commission artists people like Walter Crane William Morris Philip Webb to design things they could be all sorts of things there were screens and there were fire you know guards and face screens and slippers and you know cases all these things that that would then be produced by the Royal School of Needlework and that's really how it starts so you get that sense of early history um, and some really beautiful arts and crafts pieces and they're really really beautiful things that's probably some of my favorite things and then you come into the main gallery and the first thing we look at is the Royal Connection which is really what they're known for today and beginning with Queen Victoria's funeral pall, they have worked on every coronation since um, Edward. So it, it's really interesting that they, they have that. So we're very lucky that the exhibition has 
one of the trains. So it has the coronation train of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother from 1937. Very beautiful, very long, very beautiful. So long. So long. Not <laughs> as long as Queen Elizabeth II, but uh, it's very long. And we also have a very beautiful coronation cope of 1907 or 1911, I'd have to double check, um, which is in cloth of gold, really mm-hmm. beautiful. So that's, and that was a challenge that came from the Royal Collection. So it was by the gracious permission of Her Majesty that they were loaned to the exhibition, um, but we had to figure out what to do with them because you can't just put them out. We tend to use open display. I feel quite strongly that fashion in particular it needs to be on open display. I think it's hard enough to appreciate clothing when it's on a static figure. And then once you put it behind glass, I think it's another remove. And I think we tend to do more contemporary work, so it's less of a problem. But in this instance, we definitely had to close it in, but we're not a cased museum. So we had to figure out ways of enclosing this, these beautiful objects. So you have lovely royal things. We talk about the military. There were the military connections. Mm-hmm. Even through World War II, you couldn't go and get machine embroidered badges. So somebody had to embroider all the badges for all the officers. So the Royal School was producing a lot of those. There were commissions and they have, there's a wonderful commission book and it has all the different commissions. But then uh, the page that it's open to, they actually have the jacket with the, the embroidered badges that were the commission. So you have the two pieces together. Yes. That's quite nice. You have ecclesiastical work. Mm-hmm. They did lots of work for churches and they continue to do. They didn't set out to do uh, church work. They originally were secular, but church work soon became um, very important. And if you know the history of the Church of England, during the Victoria era coming out of the Oxford movement, there was a great uh, kind of renovation of churches happening all over England. Um, so there was this great boom of, of church building and church decorating. So they obviously found their niche, but we have contemporary work on display as well. So they continue to create copes and altar frontals for cathedrals and churches all over, still, still doing that. They had a commercial lingerie section where they would sell lingerie and trousseau. I was not expecting that section. I loved it. I was living. Yes. Mm. I so good. And the thing is, I mean, sadly, you couldn't take the samples out, but when we were putting the samples in the cases, they had these little swatches they would do to show the different colors and techniques. The stitching is so incredibly fine. It is quite beautiful, just the quality of the work. I mean, it's so fine, so beautiful. That was lingerie, and they did that commercially up until World War II from about 1919 as, again, a way of making money. Uh, and the sales were famous because the sales were hosted by various princesses and duchesses. So you could go and be sold, you know, very glamorous. And then it takes us through kind of how they train. So you look at all the different things that students had to do at the Royal School and things where they were apprentices. At first they had a training diploma, then they become apprentices. And now they have things like future tutors and the degree mm-hmm. programs. So it takes you up to contemporary design where students make the most extraordinary things out of needlework, contemporary work. I mean, speaking of what you were just saying, like the level of skill of the actual stitching, that section, I mean, I love that in the exhibition, you can get really close to a lot of stuff, especially the kind of contemporary, the the kind of tutorial stuff, the, the right, yes. stuff and the actual skill of every stitch is amazing. Like so next level. It is. It really is. And I'm not an embroiderer and I don't have that skill, 
But I have to say, uh, you see it and you think, I don't know how they even do it. It's quite extraordinary. It is so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Did yeah. you see like the sushi box? So there's one of yeah. the. I know one of the one of their projects is they have to they have something called the box or creative box. Mm. So they have to make a box that opens and has secret drawers. So there is a Tudor hall that opens up with little drawers. So good, right? That one, yes. And then somebody did a whole sushi box. Like everything is embroidered. The sushi, the it's quite extraordinary, like a bento box. I mean, yeah, all of the raised work. Oh, I lived and I love sushi. So I was was like, thank you so much. (laughs) <laughs> I'll say so if you love if you love stitching definitely come and see the exhibition it is it the amount of work and the level of work on display is quite extraordinary it really is and I loved that you got a an understanding of how not only how the school was run and how it kind of went through history but then you go upstairs and you see kind of what is built from that knowledge you get the red dress and you get Kate Middleton's lace, I think. You get all of these, mm. and you get the work of contemporary students, some of whom were learning how to stitch in lockdown. It's such a tantalizing and yet informative glimpse into the RSN's kind of like, I use the word robust because it is, it's deep, but it's broad, this gigantic exactly. history. Mm. Exactly. And the thing that I love is you have all those traditional skills, but when you get upstairs onto the mezzanine level, you see those traditional skills exploding into the most contemporary design. And, you know, the Nicholas Oakwell dress with 200,000 individual ostrich fronds, yeah. stitched on. you know, they're crazy, but, and there's applications for this work. So they aren't skills that are moribund or not without relevance today because people are using and working with them. Designers are working with them. It's quite exciting. It is so exciting. Yeah, exactly. You get an understanding of how these quote unquote traditional skills can be used to create some very, very untraditional stuff as like a little curatorial thing. The, um, Throughout the exhibition, there are these very, very large embroidery hoops in which there are um, enlarged images of students learning at the RSN. And that is one of my favorite curatorial choices ever. I just think, I just think that's so neat. (laughs) Well, that was our, um, we have a really fabulous exhibition designer, Beth, uh, Beth West, and we've worked with her a very, very long time. So she and I have worked together a lot. And when when we were approaching the exhibition design, because that was over to us, mm. you know, we had the object list. And the thing that I felt and she felt that the challenge in mounting an exhibition like this was how do you make all of that cohesive? How do you give it a visual cohesion? Because there's so much to look at and so many different things happening. And one of the motifs that Beth decided was this idea of, of embroidery hoops. And circles are actually repeated throughout the exhibition. But that was one of the things that you could tie kind of the elements together. So you kind of move through and you've got these kind of embroidery hoops. I have to say a lot of, and we have an amazing set builder who just made those out of like, you know, cut the wood. And I think it's like a curtain pole, <laughs> a do- you know, like a steel, yeah. To make it look like the, I have to say, and it looks like a giant embroidery hoop. I was utterly delighted, especially because the so what, like logo is also in an embroidery hoop. So I was like, oh, fabulous. I love embroidery hoops. Oh, love. I have a dress covered in embroidery hoops, and that's what I wear to give <laughs> my talks. Like, I'm just an embroidery hoop gal. So I really loved it. <laughs> well, actually, that was our, 
I feel like we did we did something else with embroidered hoops, Beth and I, and maybe the Liberty Exhibition. So we have a long we have a long history with embroidered hoops as well. But that was one of the best things and best kind of ideas to tie things together as you move through the space. I was so tickled. So thank you. Next question. Um, and this might be a difficult question because picking favorites is always hard. But do you have any favorite embroidered objects in the exhibition? I do. I well, there's a lot of beautiful work, and mm -hmm. it is hard. I have to say, in the earliest section, there is a tiny angel that is worked by Bessie Burden, uh, who was William Morris's. Uh, pardon my beeping thing. Okay. Uh, Bessie Burden, who was William Morris's sister-in-law, I believe, and she was amazing and actually that stitch is now known as the burden stitch still still work today but it's the most exquisite little arts and crafts angel with the symbol it's not big it might be eight inches by six inches but it's the most exquisitely done work I mean the most beautiful really really flawless and that came from the William Morris Gallery in Walthamstow uh -huh. but it's a really it, it's just lovely. It's, I would have that. I, if I have one thing, I would have that. So that there are lots of things. I love lots of it, but that is one thing that I was particularly, and I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm really tall, but I like small things, like tiny things interest me. I don't know what that is. I remember looking at that angel and being like, she is radiant. Like radiant. there is a glow. Oh, beautiful. Oh. It's, I know the most beautiful silk. And the thing that when we were doing it because it's with Marta my colleague when we were placing the objects is that that wall was painted sort of a dark green sort of the color mm. of magnolia leaves <gasps> and so we put the little angel I mean it looked fabulous just this little angel on this dark green wall and then you have a caption and you have this white caption and Marta's like I don't want to stick this white caption on our beautiful wall so we did put it off to the side we had a few people like why is that on the side but we didn't want to mess up our beautiful because she's so beautiful she should just have the wall to herself it's what she deserves yes she definitely deserves it I agree this is maybe a big question because you have done as you said like 40 exhibitions so what other needleworked objects have been on display over the course of your career at the museum oh. Okay, well, that's the some big of question. My, sorry, it is big, but I'll, I can pick some highlights. Well, we did an earlier exhibition with Kay Facet, and I'm a big fan of Kay Facet, and I have a book coming out. <gasps> Congratulations! Together about Kay and some of my colleagues have done essays about Kay's work. Because the thing with me with Kay is there's lots of books. Kay's done lots of books, and Kay's mm. so interesting. He's had such an amazing life, but nobody's really kind of written about him thinking about his work because I was really interested in to me he sits within like the pattern and decoration movement you know that came out of America in the 80s 70s and 80s so I was looking you know so it was so that book's coming so we did a, an earlier show with Cave I think Cave's the quilting the knitting the needlepoint I think he's amazing I think he has a real gift for mm. things I've seen him Usually we have meetings with him and you get about maybe 15 20 minutes into a meeting and then he takes the knitting out and he's going but he he can work he's working things out as he knits like he has this amazing awareness of stitch and how to design I mean it's quite extraordinary how he, he is quite an amazingly talented guy we also when we I mentioned the Liberty exhibition that had some beautiful stitching in it oh. it had beautiful mm. beautiful um art embroidery because they had an embroidery department at Liberty's yes 
and they would embroider things to sell, or you could take your own work in and they would embroider on top, or you could buy a kit and they would, you could embroider it at Liberty because they are famous for their Liberty colors. So we had beautiful work, but also smocking. We had the most fabulous smocking. They revived smocking as an art form. It was so fabulous. I know, smock, and particularly the traditional uh, workwear smocks, you know, that really inspired children's wear. They had a whole line of children's wear with these little smocked outfits, really cool. Beautiful smocking, that's a needlework, te- a needle technique that I love. And then in the 1920s, again, fantastic embroideries, all the beadwork, the most, we had an amazing cape that was done on the most, it was a very fine net and it was all sort of chenille and ribbon mm. embroidery from France in black and white. I mean, just fabulous, this cape. Can you imagine? You're just like swanning around Paris in a net cape that's completely covered in needle or ribbon and chenille embroideries. Quite amazing. And this amazing tactile, luxurious, still beautiful, quite amazing. So we've had some, we have had a lot of needlework things, you know, coming and going. We did a really great show on Anna Sui, who's a designer that I'm a big fan of. And when we did her show, she also has a lot of fantastic embroideries done uh, with her things. So I love that. Like you have had instances of really spectacular embroidery spanning like over a hundred years. It's just, and again, I think someone like Anna loves those ideas, the techniques or, Mm. you know, these skills that people have and they can be applied to contemporary design. And it's so nice to have these kind of kind of glimpses of uh, needlework amidst shows that don't necessarily specialize in needlework because that's how it is. Embroidery, in at least on this podcast, embroidery exists in a bit of a vacuum, but in real life, embroidery is everywhere and part of mm-hmm. a much larger world of textile production. Exactly. So it's nice to you know, have, understand the entire textile landscape. Yes. And I think then that's one of the things we've always tried to do here. Again, I mentioned earlier when we were chatting about this idea of material culture mm-hmm. and I really, that's something that really appeals to me. And I think it's, you know, we live with objects and objects are part of our lives and textiles, particularly, I think we have relationships to fabric that we don't have to say a painting. Like, I just don't generally wear a painting around, but I put clothing on, you know, I engage with textiles every day in an intimate way. And I think that's so important. But again, all of those skills, all of those things, because they go back for, you know, millennia. Yeah. uh, Are still in work today. We still see them. And we love to see it. This is another big, chunky question. It's another question about favorites. What is your favorite textile object or objects? What anywhere in the world? Yeah, anything. Oh, that's a big question. If it's needlework, even better. If it's not, I'm just happy with anything. Definitely, some of it would be needlework. Ooh. So if I think about it, I have to say that's a big question. So sorry. (laughs) That's fine. That's fine. But just if I think about it, I think as maybe that's just because I'm an American from the Midwest. Mm -hmm. I do really love. Uh, quilting, particularly historic quilting and album quilts. I've seen some amazing examples of album quilts. I love samplers. Me too. You know, I think I just, you know, as a child, you know, I was, I was thinking I was like, must have been seven or eight when it was the bicentennial 
Mm. And I think you just absorb like colonial America or something because <laughs> everything was like colonial America. So I've always liked those things. I do like, um, yeah. So I do like things like, uh, or folk art. So oh, yeah. kind of naive or primitive kind of work along that line. I've always liked. Um, I, so I do like that. And the other thing I really love is I love going, I love China. And I mm. love I've loved my trips to China. I think it's such an interesting history and culture, but I've seen the most exquisite needlework in China that is centuries and centuries old, but it's absolutely extraordinary. So just the skill in China, when they're doing their silk weaving and embroidery, that's the most fine and not with, mm. you know, and then I saw them weaving still. And it, so it's a jacquard process, but not, but with two people rather than a card. So yeah. there's a person doing all the changing, not the cards. So it's an amazingly complicated work. So some of the most beautiful things I've seen have definitely been in China. Really, really exquisite work. That totally makes sense. I've not been, but I've seen Chinese embroidery and it is so unbelievably next level. It is painting, basically. It is painting. It's amazing. And it's interesting in the exhibition, they do uh, the Royal School of Needlework does something mm -hmm. called both sides alike. Yeah. It's the same on both sides. And the only other, and it was funny because we were talking about that. And she was saying, well, it's in the kind of in the Western world that the, the Royal School is the place that does that still. And she said, other than that, it's China. And I know when I went to an embroidery school in China, there were people who were doing this sort of embroidery on both sides, which I can't even get my head around it because. I can barely sew on a button with all my knots and, you know, I think, how do you get it? So it's the same on both sides. And it's not like you're, it's not two separate embroideries. You're working both sides as you go. So. It, that is so unbelievably mind boggling. What do you think the role of needlework is in today's world? Interestingly, I feel that the role of needlework has changed over the last two years. I think the pandemic has definitely changed people's perceptions of things like needlework making mm -hmm. in general. I think it, I think that space, that enforced time off when you just had to be in your house. And I think people reacted in all sorts of ways. But one of the things I noticed was that people were making things. I was darning things. I don't darn things, but I yes. thought, oh, darn. So I bought like the mushroom and I bought my darning flosses. I'm doing my socks and my jumpers and I'm trying to do you know I love people that do visible mending I think it's really cool mm -hmm. so I've done some it's not very cool it's quite, it's quite sad actually compared to like Tom of Holland who does really sure. amazing stuff and then there's me but I think but I think needlework had a reevaluation. I think making and working with your hands definitely informed a lot of people's lockdown experience and it'll be interesting to see but I definitely think and I think there was the, the pandemic, but I also think we are, as a culture are, and people are trying to, how do you resolve modern life? And modern life is fast, it's disposable, it's not very totally. pleasant. So this idea that you could make something yourself, it isn't throwaway, that isn't mass production, that you can make something, I think has also informed that. I think it's definitely as relevant as it's ever been, if not more so recently. Heck yeah, fully agreed. It's so interesting. I'm going to bring this up here because this exhibition is about the Royal School of Needlework and um, my interview with, with Dr. Susan K. Williams, which was the first interview for So What, her comments about this 
um, I find so interesting and they really stuck with me. And I do think that they are a really interesting compliment to what you've said. She said, when I asked her this question, and I didn't know that I was going to be asking every single guest this question at that point. Um, but she said in response to what is the role of needlework in today's world, she said something like needlework is really good and, and helpful in this kind of early pandemic. She didn't know it was early pandemic, but like this sort of lockdown world, because to stitch, you have to keep your hands clean. And there is something Uh about, I think about that a lot because that was something that never crossed my mind. No, it wouldn't have crossed mine either. It's like the perfect craft for all of this because your hands have to be constantly washed. Yeah, of course. And it's so, I think about that a lot because I was surprised by it, but also in comments like the power of the hand, what you were just saying that like everybody was in their homes and needed something to do. And also you said about this, this world is full of, is fast and full of technology and it's not very pleasant. It's interesting that needlework requires one to wash their hands. It's like, it kind of feels like um, when one stitches instead of uh, buying into the horrible trafficking of humans and the environment that comes with fast fashion and all that sort of stuff. We're cleaning ourselves. Mm, definitely. Metaphorically. Exactly. Yeah. And I think like, well, I love this idea that people are going to sew their own clothes. And I think it's been, it's been coming. I mean, I think we've seen here, there's kind of, you know, there's this increase. In, in making your own clothes of, mm. of home sewing, which I think when I was a kid, my mother sewed clothes for us. And they usually were like, you know, purple and white polka dot t-shirts with green trousers. It wasn't very exciting. You know, this was That's like the early 70s. It was quite extraordinary. But so I remember my mother making things, but it wasn't, but my generation didn't make things. You know, that wasn't, it never felt like, well, it didn't seem cool at all. And I think it's interesting, but I think there's been this, there's definitely been a movement for people to do things like make clothes again. And that, that has been going on for a time, but definitely I think this experience has just recalibrated all sorts of ideas. You know, it'd be interesting to see how it all pans out, but definitely I think people are making again in ways that they probably hadn't for a very long time. That's true. Yeah. This is an interesting time. I think you're my first sew interview kind of, post much of the much of the Americas and Europe abandoning all COVID protocols uh, and life returning to quote unquote normal. And I would, and I'm curious, it feels like we are entering a a different chapter, a new, a new world. And I would be curious to know um, how, how much needlework and stitching sticks around, hopefully a lot. Hopefully a lot. I think it will still have its, yeah, I think it will, I mean, there may be a dip, but I think people's interests are there. I think people are interested in the world around them engaging through things like fabric, through stitching. And I think it's, yeah, and it's part of who we are. I think it's part of, and I think we've gotten away from it, but I think people have from time immemorial have tried to make something this is what humans do they make things totally and like what better way to celebrate that than to go out and stitch something and also to go to the fashion and textile museum and see it in action exactly the ideal combo both (laughs) yes (laughs) wearing something you've made yourself yes 
How can people learn more about your work and the work of the Fashion and Textile Museum? And do you have anything you would like to promote? Sure, lots of exciting things to promote. So (laughs) you can find us on the website and I will probably get it wrong because it changed recently. So just look up Fashion and Textile Museum. My team is going to love that. Like I can- <laughs> I'll put a link to it on the social media. Thank you. Can you please? Because I'm sure it, it was it was something and I feel like it's changed. It okay. might be fashion and textile museum dot something now. I it changed a bit. I anyway, you can find us. We're there. We come up. Okay. You check and check us out on social media. We're all, we have a great Instagram account. We're on Facebook and I think we're on Twitter. So definitely come and check out all our social media. There's lots of exciting things happening out there. We do have a, um, interestingly, we do have a vacancy, which is currently being advertised for our conservation and collections officer. Ooh-hoo. I will post uh, the link yeah, to that. So that's something, but do, and you can see all of our upcoming exhibitions. But like I mentioned, we do have a really exciting K-Facet exhibition, which is coming that's coming in the fall that's going to be great it's called the power of pattern and that's really developed with Kate so we'd worked with Kate in the past so when we approached this one I was really like you know what whatever you want to do just you go for it so it's going to be a total Kate experience completely immersive all kind of thought out by Kate so it was a really lovely collaborative project that's coming and it's going to be spectacular interestingly features quilts from all over the world not just Kate Oh, hey. I know. So it's really exciting. That's going to be fun. And then, oh gosh, what's after that? Oh, really exciting. We have um, an exhibition of Warhol textiles coming. (gasps) Cool. So that's following on from the Artist Textiles Exhibition, which is still touring the world. It's in Spain at the moment. Uh, This is some new work that the the private collectors um, have done and uncovered lots of exciting information about Warhol textiles. So that is going to be another great blockbuster. So we've got two really exciting shows coming. So do come along to all of those because they are going to be fabulous. Yes. Oh, delight. Oh, big things ahead. Yeah, no, it's going to be good. And but we're always the other thing that we do, which started up during the pandemic, which has been great, has been our online talks program. Mm-hmm. So people from all over the world, you can um, get a ticket, reasonably priced ticket, and you can join into a talk. They're also available on demand. So there's a whole library of talks you can go back and listen to a few featuring myself so some shameless self promotion <laughs> there's lots of exciting things that you can you can engage with at all levels and you don't have to be in london though of course we would love you to come to london and see us but you can engage with us wherever you are delight thank you and also anybody who is in london or is like visiting london go to the museum see the exhibition obviously and then go to the shop because the shop is also just a great time the shop is great. We have a really great good shop. shop for being small. It's yeah. Perfect. Dennis, thank you so much. It has been such a treat and such a joy. I've honestly had a great time. I've learned oh, a lot. Me too. It's been a great, it's great chat. It's nice when you have like somebody who's sympathetic. Thank you so much. What a joy. Hello, me again. What a fun conversation that was. I learned a lot and I hope you did too. Thank you to Dennis for the rousing chat. The Royal School of Needlework is really foundational for so much of the needlework that is made today here in Britain and in places far beyond it. So it's a real treat to get to discuss and celebrate it. 
Some upcoming episodes focus on a very important RSN graduate, so it's really excellent timing. A quick note I want to end on this episode is something that came up in our conversation, and that is this idea of embroidery in a vacuum. Because so much of this podcast focuses on embroidery, it does tend to exist in isolation, at least for me and doing this work and doing my PhD work. I relish opportunities like this interview where I can mentally take embroidery out of the theoretical box I put it in and return it to the larger world of textiles. Embroidery is but one part of the vast world of textiles, a world that has existed for as long as people have clothed themselves and kept themselves warm and decorated their surroundings. It's a fascinating world to think about and study and find ourselves a part of. And that's all I got to say on that. If you'll be passing through London, do go see the exhibition before it ends on the 4th of September. You can get really up close and personal with a century and a half of really, like, insanely good stitching. Like, really, trust me, you have never seen stitching like this before. People are so good at stuff. Ugh, I love to see it. I visited the exhibition myself recently and so enjoyed it. What a delight it was to see some stunning pieces of arts and crafts embroidery, ugh, including a piece of plush work that made my heart sing, and a lingerie I live, I love. It's hard to pick my favorite pieces from the show, but the coronation robe Dennis mentioned is absolutely stunning, covered in extremely shiny and very luxurious gold work. I was also delighted to see the red dress, which is indeed a red dress, upon which women from all around the world, many of whom are marginalized and live in poverty, have stitched upon. The variety of objects on display really illustrates how much can be done with stitch, and how much has come out of the RSN in just a century and a half. It's so rare to have a museum exhibition that focuses just on embroidery. Thank you to the RSN and the Fashion and Textile Museum for making it possible. And on that note, I'll say goodbye for this episode. I will be back soon with more historical needlework goodness. And as always, thank you for listening. Now go out and stitch some stories and celebrate the RSN's 150th anniversary. Bye! Thank you.